Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. Recently, um, we we also have heard uh, about the crime stats in South Africa and the latest criminal stats show that seven out of ten police stations reporting the highest murder rates in the country are in the Western Cape. And also recently, a report by Mexican Council for Public Security and Criminal Justice ranked the mother city as the eighth most violent city in the world. Wow, I mean, that, that is quite incredible. Dr. Guy Lam is a criminologist and is also at the Department of Political Science at Stellenbosch University, has also had a look at this and, and has some thoughts. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us, Dr. Lam. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Pamela. Uh, are we just going to isolate um, the Western Cape for now? I mean, I know that there, there's also a bigger picture here, um, and this falls within a bigger backdrop in the country. But your your initial thoughts on why why the Eastern Cape is is it's not only crime that I think concerns me is the violent nature of the crime there. Are we referring to the Western Cape or the Eastern Cape? Oh, the Western Cape. The Western Cape. Okay. The Western Cape. Yes, I think because I think this I... is the mother city we're talking about. Of course, of course. I think the, the idea is really to have the focus on the city of Cape Town because mm. if we look at the entire Western Cape, actually it's, it doesn't look so dramatic as we compare it to other provinces. I think when we look at the city of Cape Town, mm-hmm. I think that's quite important. And really just for the listeners, a very useful report to look at if they're interested in these kind of things is uh, something produced by the South African Cities Network. They produce the urban safety uh, or the state of urban safety within South Africa, and that's available on a website called Safer Spaces. So if you just Google Safer Spaces and go and have a look there. And what that does is a really interesting report because it tracks crime at a city level. So, for example, the South African police services do not produce crime data for cities. They just produce it nationally, provincially, and then they produce it for the precinct or or, or police area. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to figure out for a city, it takes quite a lot of work to do. So I've had some colleagues in the Center of Criminology at UCT have done that, but recently the ISS in Tswana have done it as well. So the South Af- State of Safety in South African Cities is a good report to look at South African Cities Network. So mm. just to give you a bit of a background here, mm. so City of Cape Town, I mean, what we've noticed over the past 10 years and what the data is showing is a dramatic increase in violent crime mm. uh, from about 2009, but particularly 2010, 2011, and it's on the, the actual murder rate is almost doubled. So this is the rate per 100,000. Mm. So if you look at, for example, the national murder rate, so mm-hmm. it's at about 36, 37 per 100,000, mm-hmm. um, where the city of Cape Town, or as of the 2018-2019 crime data, sits at about 75 mm. per 100,000. Mm. <laughs> you got 36 at a national level, like mm. 75 plus for, for Cape Town. Mm. Now, of course, the point that you've raised is about these sort of seven districts. So mm. there are between seven and about 15 policing areas, policing precincts, which are the ones that rarely account for most of the violence within the city of Cape Town. And violence, we, we're largely referring to murder, mm. or attempted murders, just because the data on murder is a lot better than most other crime categories because mm. it's got to do with reporting. Mm. Um, most people report murder because there's a body and there's mm. life insurance and those kinds of things. Mm. Um, so we've seen a trend over the past 10 years or so with increasing levels of violent crime within Cape Town. And that's we know there's been a number of studies about that. We know it's been driven largely by guns and gangs. Um, uh, we saw a lot of guns being injected into the sort of gang economy, the organized criminal economy from about 2000, 2007, 2008. Um, 
a lot of those, a significant portion of those came from corrupt police, or, uh, particularly mm. an individual called Christian Prinsler. Mm-hmm. That was given directly to gangs. And then, of course, we've seen firearms entering the gang sector through theft and robberies from licensed firearm owners, but also there's been corruption associated with firearm licensing. So there's a number of cases going on where key figures in the criminal underworld and gangs have been acquiring licenses for their various firearms, um, but they've been paying bribes allegedly and in, you know, kind of there's been corruption involved in those things. <laughs> so just to kind of talk you through the reason why that's happened is because these guns went straight to gangs and mm-hmm. that changes the gang conflict. So if mm-hmm. one gang gets more guns, mm-hmm. has more guns than another, it tends to lead to escalations mm-hmm. in gang wars. Mm-hmm. And of course, guns aren't the only issue here. Western Cape has a serious problem with alcohol abuse mm-hmm. uh, and alcohol is the major facilitating factor for Interpersonal violence. So we're seeing a lot of the violence in Cape Town is gang-related, but also there's a major component of it interpersonal. Mm-hmm. So people who are drinking together get mm-hmm. into arguments and disagreements. Someone pulls out a knife or a gun, and then someone dies or mm-hmm. gets seriously injured. So that's the, the kind of background here. I don't want to go on to too many more details. I, I'm happy to unpick no, a few I, of these things. I mean, we, we're really listening and taking all of this quite seriously. Uh, if if people like yourself, up to a point where you've named an individual, know that this is possibly has to do with the fact that there is corruption within the police force and it stems from that, how far have have we gotten to dealing with that relationship between the the gangs and the police force? Well, I mean, there's there's a few things that's going on. So at the moment, as I'm sure a number of listeners are aware, and you're no doubt aware about the tensions between what's happening within crime intelligence within mm. the staffs. You know, the head of crime intelligence has been suspended, and this has to do with all sorts of arrest control, you know, conflicts of arresting control. Now, look, mm. the, the the current head of crime intelligence and a number of other very committed senior police officials within the Western Cape, you know, the, the kind of good side of the story, they, through a project called Project MP, were able to identify this massive amount of firearms that certain police had, were facilitating the movement of those guns to gangs. So these were guns that were supposed to have been destroyed, but they were kind of kept aside and then sold. So we had some really good kind of police personnel who were doing an excellent job and identified this. Um, We do have a number of investigations and court cases going on in relation to that corruption. But of course, this is this is this is hard, dangerous stuff. I mean, the killing of of Shaul Kinnear is, is an indication of that. I mean, Shaul Kinnear mm-hmm. was investigating this kind of corruption. So it seems as though that there's you know organised criminal elements and very prominent ones with the involvement of certain SAPS officials who are behind his assassination. Of course, that investigation is ongoing. We've seen arrests of allegedly corrupt police dealing with these firearms. Um, but of course, the issue is, you know, many of these firearms are in circulation, um, which is a key problem. We have also seen in recent times the police have done a lot of work. They recently had a, um, a presentation to the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee on Police where they were presenting their stats on the number of weapons that have been surrendered through the current amnesty. So we've seen, uh, you know, thousands of weapons and thousands of rounds of ammunition coming in to the police. And hopefully those won't leak out again, um, but certainly we, the police seem to be prioritizing this issue. But so, the thing is, is that the weapons, yeah, there's still many weapons in circulation, they're still being used by gangs, and they're still resulting in, in violence. What, what is your take on on the introduction of, of the army um, recently in the, in the Western Cape areas? And just, I mean, there's a bit of history here is that, I mean, since, I mean, during the apartheid era, the, the army was deployed with the police often in, in particularly in the 80s during mm. the state of emergency. Then, of course, 
in the 1990s. We have, you know, uh, new democracy. And, but since the mid-1990s, the army has been deployed fairly regularly with the police. So it was sort of a thing that, you know, wasn't in the public domain, but they'd actually always been doing it. Um, and they'd sort of gone into, you know, high crime areas. So there was like a big operation in 2000 called Operation Crackdown, where the army and the police were in places like Kailitsha and others. Um, and, you know, they've been doing it. They did it under Fiala Reclaim in 2015 and after that. And then, of course, it became very politicized because of, in the Western Cape, you were having the murder rate was going up and up and up. Mm. And the argument that the DA was pushing at the time, um, as particularly under Helen Ziller as Premier, was deploy the military unilaterally which is mm. <laughs> constitutionally wow. very problematic. Mm, yeah. um, obviously, they revised their position, but that was the public statements that were being made. And, but it was many communities in, in conflict-affected areas who were going, we want the army in here, we don't trust the police. Um, so deploying, deploying the army has happened, and what it can do is it can have a short-term stabilization. So you have more people on the ground, more boots on the ground to kind of demonstrate a show of force if you're going into an area where... You know, gangs have captured that and you bring in the military and, you know, you can create a sort of a temporary sense of safety. They can be added personnel to provide, you know, sort of protective cordons around areas where the police are doing searches. But the, the military don't have the mandate to go and conduct arrests, you know, laterally. They're there to support the police. So it's support in those kind of areas where it's kind of the state has to kind of really get a foothold back into some of these places. And so it, these kind of operations can have a temporary effect in reducing violence, but it's it's not sustainable because, you know, the, the military are there for a short period of time and then they leave. But also they don't have a lot of personnel either. They've got, you know, they've got peacekeeping commitments. They have other, you know, their main mandate of, you know, protecting the, the borderline and doing the things that militaries conventionally do. Um, and obviously their their best troops are in actually peacekeeping missions at the moment in the DRC and elsewhere. Let's take a quick break and I'll also sure. take calls, uh, Dr. Lamb. Um, calls are going to be coming through on 011-714-2006. You're also welcome to send WhatsApp notes on 614 104107. We're speaking to a criminologist. He's also at the Department of Political Science at Stellenbosch University, unpacking the murder rate in the Western Cape, particularly the Mother City. Um, a report just uh, released recently by Mexican Council for Public Security and Criminal Justice ranks the Mother City as the eighth most violent city in the world. And what are we doing? We're unpacking why that is. <laughs> Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. We are speaking to Dr. Guy Lamb, criminologist at the Department of Political Science at Stellenbosch University, unpacking what is behind the kind of murder rates that we're seeing in the mother city. Um, the latest criminal stats show that seven out of ten police stations reporting the highest murder rates in the country are in the Western Cape. And I also refer to a report by the Mexican Council for Public Security and Criminal Justice ranking the mother city as the eighth most violent city in the world. Why is that the case? I mean, we know that there, you know, people always refer to unemployment as an issue, but I guess there's unemployment everywhere else. So what is behind the kind of murder rate that we're seeing in the mother city? I'll also take your calls. I did say I'll take the calls on 011-714-2006. Let me start with Malose, who's calling from Bulgwani. Good afternoon, Malose. Good afternoon, Mrs. Pimelo, and your guest. Afternoon. 
Simelo, my experience in the West Indies. Mm-hmm. I ran away. Mm-hmm. I left West Indies. Typically living. Because the, 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 the violent crime is too much. I used to stay in Delft, mm-hmm. waiting for essential services. Mm-hmm. Um, Like, you you will see there is this, um, they call them Gweranzi. It's a young, young kid, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. From different schools. Mm-hmm. They build territories. You don't cross over to that school or to that territory. <laughs> but the only people who were able to defuse those that those groups mm-hmm. is taxi owners and taxi drivers. Why? Because the police cannot handle that situation. You, you see, it's in Kailicha, it's in Delft, it's in most townships, the Nyanga side. And they grew up in that. They have been groomed and... I don't remember if you know the documentary that was held that was done by an American guy about the crimes crime things in 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 Kailiche. and they don't stop until they kill somebody. My question is mm-hmm. here is my question: Do we have intelligence services that can penetrate the gangsterism to try and reduce this, or can they allow provinces to have their own police services to be able put them in a places that are hotspot. Because I think the the way the, it's centralized and it's national, it doesn't work properly. It doesn't work properly. Eh? Mm-hmm. And you find that the essential services, the ambulances, the ESCOM guys and all, they're working with securities and guards because you cannot go out and serve community without your life being in danger. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Marusu, for that. Dr. Lamb, the centralization of the police, does that have any impact? Absolutely, absolutely. Thanks to Marusu. I think he made some really, really good points, particularly around Delft, Carnage, mm-hmm. and other places. So just to bring listeners to, to their attention, there is a excellent, it's a very thick report, but it's the Carnage Commission of Inquiry report into policing and the breakdown and the relationships between the police and community in Kailiche, mm. which could apply to many large townships and informal settlements across South Africa mm. um, and points to many of the issues that he raised. So mm. the point, the last point you raised about the police. So police are a national function that are then divulged and decentralized to provincial. So obviously the provincial has to follow the national. Mm. At the city level, cities can establish metro police. Mm. Uh, not all cities or metros have them. The mm. city of Cape Town does, mm. so they have the metro police, but they also have law enforcement. Mm. So the city of Cape Town has probably the most resourced um, police at a city or metro level. That's so that's quite important. Yeah. Um, but what's happened, he's, he, uh, Malusi may ask the question about provincial police. Mm. And within terms of constitutional mandates, mm. provinces don't have a policing mandate. But in the Western Cape, they are pushing that envelope in a very interesting way. So mm-hmm. the Western Cape government brought out their Western Cape safety plan. And in the safety plan, one of the big projects is to bring in law enforcement officers to hotspot areas. So mm-hmm. they're doing exactly what Malusa is asking. Mm-hmm. They've got about 500 of them. Um, but to do that, the Western Cape government has to work with the city of Cape Town and get the city of Cape Town mm-hmm. to appoint the law enforcement officers and they get uh, deployed according to the sort of hotspot plan. So the city is, in, in, you know, kind of investing a lot on this, and it's based on some pretty good science. And the science is, do you, if you want to tackle crime rates, particularly violent crime rates, and you know, very simple sciences, you concentrate your resources in the areas where the criminal offending mm. is concentrated, and you get good intelligence about it. So Malusi's point about intelligence—that's mm. particularly tricky. Um, we've seen, you know, SAPs do have, you know, 
crime intelligence and do have informers that are in gangs and consistently done that. But crime intelligence has been in crisis for many years, so mm-hmm. it's probably inconsistent. In terms of accessing gangs in places like Kailicha, sort of more, uh, you know, other forms that are sort of non, not sort of your conventional gangs or the more informal gangs that Malusi was talking about, mm-hmm. I think they don't have particularly good intelligence about those. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Emmanuel is calling from Cape Town. Hi, Emmanuel. Hi, Pamelo. Good afternoon. Thank you for the good show as usual and good afternoon to your guests mm-hmm. and uh, listeners. In my own opinion, I don't think we do not have the intelligence. The mm-hmm. intelligence is there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if as suggested by one of your uh, callers, Mm -hmm. that taxi drivers taxi drivers can dismantle a gang unit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If taxi drivers could dismantle a gang unit, then then we should make those taxi drivers the intelligence of the country. So I don't believe we don't have the intelligence. But I believe that there are some highly placed persons in the society that have influence some people in the crime uh, you know the delivery system in the crime intelligence system who have accepted to you know go with that flow for some for some benefits or so and then they compromise you know, you know taking steps to you know, to 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 eradicate there is there's nothing that is happening in terms of crime in any country that the that the crime intelligence cannot handle, because I'm I'm just wondering. Then why are they there? They are there because they are com- they are competent. So if ordinary, if sorry sorry, I'm not not ordinary. If people are not intelligent oriented, taxi drivers could dismantle a gang unit. I I don't I, I don't know what to say. Thank you very much. All right, Twenty, uh, you're calling from Cape Town. Hi. Hi, and how are you, Pamela? I'm well. Thanks for calling, Twenty. Yes, good. Listen, Pumelo, the topic that we are dealing with today is a very sensitive one. Mm-hmm. Because some of us are sitting with information of the corrupt police officers mm-hmm. who cause and connive mm. with gangsters and criminals. Mm. And, and the question that I want to ask from your guest is, uh, do they vet these young police officers, mm. particularly the young ones? Because it is them. Remember, it seems to me that they are being drawn from a pool of being criminals themselves or they have criminal minds mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. When they join the force, mm. they keep on conniving with, uh, with criminals. Remember, they are coming from townships. They have been exposed mm. to criminality in their young age. Mm. And now they are the members of the force. And they still owe their allegiance back to their societies where they are exposed to criminal gangs and they admire them. I- I'll tell you a simple example. You go to the police station you report a serious, a serious crime. Before you get home, the, criminali- the criminals are waiting for you. Mm. Because they know when did you go to the police station, who did you speak to, and what kind of crime did you report. So, to me, it lies on whether they are being vetted. Mm-hmm. The government should stop absorbing these young police officers. They should be thoroughly vetted. Mm. And if they are deserve to be the members of the force, let, let, let it be so. But if they are rotting to the core, they must not be employed. Because they compromise everybody. Mm-hmm. They compromise the, our safety as a society. They compromise themselves. Because at the end of the day, they get killed by these gangsters mm-hmm. if they don't perform. Because some of them are in their payroll. Mm-hmm.
Plenty there is raising interesting points from Cape Town. I'll come back to you, Dr. Lamb. I just want to go to Utsile for the latest in headlines at 1.30 first. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. Dr. Guy Lam is a criminologist at the Department of Political Science at Stellenbosch University. We are unpacking a couple of things that have come up recently. Um, and this, as he says, you know, this has been a long time coming. We are currently looking at the, la- the latest stats being seven out of 10 police stations reporting the highest murder rates in the country, uh, that being in the Western Cape. And I mean, that's a, a major, major concern. Let me come back to you, Dr. Lam. A couple of things that uh, Glanty spoke about, and I was going to ask you about how how does a community who who experiences violence in the way that the community members in the Western Cape experience violence and sometimes we've seen often where mothers and grandmothers and so on speak out and they speak about their fear but then there is this this relationship between the young people that come up and the gangsters and so on and Clanty's saying you know, if these young people come up and then they also become part of the, the, the police force, you're almost at a cycle that's that's non-ending. I mean, the, the question that was asked was around you know, the vetting. So, I mean, maybe let me just get straight to the issue around that. So the police do have a vetting process. Obviously, they do a criminal records check on individuals. Um, but the sort of challenge we've had is, is more than just the vetting. So there has been a problem around vetting. So certainly... Up until a few years ago, we had a process where it was fed, the vetting the, the vetting was fairly light. It would just be appoint people who wanted a job, um, and of course that has created all sorts of problems in a policing environment. If you're not recruiting people who have a passion for policing, so ideally you want to be recording, you know, kind of appointing people and recruiting people that do that. But there was a lot of pressure on the police to expand their numbers, so they went through a sort of mass recruitment drive. And of course that's that's changed now. So there's the the vetting processes. Um, and the selection process is a lot more rigorous. Um, so, but you would see certain individuals coming through that uh, that particular period in time where they may be more predisposed to mm. hanging out with gangsters and helping out gangsters. Mm. Um, but it's often the nature of the job and the frustrations that often come with the job because being a, a you know in the police in South Africa, it's a very dangerous job. It's mm. a very stressful job. Um, at the lower rank and file levels, you know. You don't get paid particularly well, which is a common problem for most countries. So it means that certain individuals may be tempted. And, of course, if you're working in areas where gangsters arrive, you need additional money, (laughs) you're going to be tempted. And this is a common problem. Um, But a real issue for police, and this is what's been shown in in many, many countries, is that if you're kind of precinct or police station, that there's at the senior level there is corruption, that that tends to paint the whole of of the relationship. So we've seen it in some of these high crime areas where the relationship between senior police and senior police officials at the station level and gangsters and certain areas that you know the, the, the police have even been captured by gangsters to the sense that they just do the bidding of gangsters. So we've seen some challenges in places like Gulf, you know, over the years has been an issue that's improved but there's been been issues in places like that. We have got so many requests uh, for, for people wanting to speak to you. Let me go to Z quickly who's calling from the from Cape Town. Z I've only got a minute for you, I'm afraid. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Um, let me just say, I'm I'm a lawyer by background. Mm-hmm. However, I grew up in one of the gang-ridden areas in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure and privilege of traveling the world, living in different world cities. And mm-hmm. 
crime and the subject of criminology is a fascinating issue, and I agree with your speaker. I didn't hear the entire discussion, but there are multiple causes, multiple elements. A lot of it is systemic. However, there's one element I just want to focus on, and where I think, with respect, that sometimes journalists fail in their own duty in how they handle the subject, and that is there are so many causes that can be traced back to an absolute lack of and a degradation and a complete implosion of leadership at the level of government where we know that police enforcement and law enforcement is a national competency. Corruption is an avoidable problem even though it has got social or, or, or normative roots. Um, the ability to be an effective policeman is as a matter of much a matter of skills as it is a simple fact of look at your average policeman or look at some of your policemen. I don't want to say your average policeman. With all due respect, a chap who weighs 120 kilos, he probably is only capable of arresting a burger at your nearest McDonald's, let alone a criminal. And thirdly, I'll tell you from experience, I've had experience where I've physically apprehended a criminal. I handed him over to my local charge office. I followed through thereafter as to what was to happen to the prosecution. Mm. And let me tell you, Nothing happened. The chap, ultimately, the matter was thrown out because, uh, frankly, the cops didn't step forward. The uh, arresting officer didn't uh, provide evidence in court. And ultimately, the charges are withdrawn. These are avoidable problems. These are leadership problems. These are management problems. And the longer we pussyfoot around the issue and talk about, frankly, peripheral issues, as opposed to the central issue of government leadership and competence, we'll never make progress. Thank you very much. In Cape Town. Dr. Lamb, um, I've only got 30 seconds for you to wrap it up. I don't know whether you want to respond to Z. I mean, just a very quick response. Of course, leadership is a key component, and within the police, they've adopted a particular approach to how they want to deal with crime, and it's the militarized, hard on crime response. And of course, that takes away all other options of dealing with the particular issue. But, uh, but there are many other issues driving us. I mean, within, I've spoken about gangs and mm-hmm. I've spoken about guns and alcohol, but also. We know that the biggest driver of violence perpetration in the long term in South Africa, particularly in Cape Town, is kind of broken and dysfunctional families where kids, particularly young boys, are exposed to trauma. Mm-hmm. And we know if we can deal with that particular issue, we can have an impact on crime going forward. But many of the other factors, of course, do play a role. I'm afraid we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Guy Lamb, criminologist, and he's also at the Department of Political Science at Stellenbosch University.